Welcome to the Naturally Nourished Podcast that delivers cutting-edge food as medicine solutions for optimal health. Allie Miller is a nutrition expert sought up by the media and America's top medical institutes for her revolutionary functional medicine interventions. From disease treatment to prevention, every episode will empower you with ways to put yourself back in control of your health. Please note, the topics discussed are for educational purposes only. Now welcome, Integrative Dietitians Allie Miller and her co-host Becky Yu. Welcome to episode 48 of the Naturally Nourished podcast. Allie here with Becky. Hey guys. And today we are focusing on PCOS. We did an episode a couple weeks back now on women's hormones. It was episode number 44 and we had such great response and so many questions from all of you listeners that we decided that this would be the next step. So much so that we had to make two episodes. So today's actually part one of PCOS. And, you know, we really delved in here because we're also in grind mode of our ketosis virtual weight loss program development. And I thought, why not focus on one of the most influential imbalances where insulin resistance really drives imbalance and ketosis can be a solution for this hormonal complication? Totally. So I know um, ketosis is a go-to in your protocols for PCOS and it aids in lowering DHEA. But before we go all sciencey on everyone, let's just define what PCOS is and the underlying mechanisms of why it gets expressed in the body. Okay. So PCOS or polycystic ovarian syndrome, uh, women that have polycystic ovarian syndrome and now on, I'm just going to call it PCOS, <laughs> otherwise it'll be a very long podcast. Uh, PCOS uh, women have abnormalities in the metabolism of androgens, and androgens are typically the male hormones or the adrenal hormones. So they tend to have abnormalities in their adrenal or male hormone family and estrogen. And we tend to see higher control or higher output of the androgen production. So PCOS can result from abnormal function of the HPA stress access, where that stress access reduces the expression of the HPO or hypothalamic pituitary ovarian access. So basically that overstressed fight or flight mechanism overrides and the rest and reproduce elements of the body does not get optimized or balanced. And so, Allie, there's a difference between having polycystic ovaries and having the diagnosis of PCOS. Can you explain that? Sure. So a woman can be diagnosed with polycystic ovaries if she has 12 or more follicles in at least one ovary. And many women with PCOS actually as a diagnosis, so the polycystic ovarian syndrome, again, many women with the syndrome actually only have the diagnostic criteria of the elevated androgenic hormones and a regular menstruation cycle. So many women actually with PCOS don't even have technically cystic ovaries. So two of the following criteria are required for PCOS, either oligio or anovulation, so irregular cycle or no cycle at all, and then hyperandrogenism, which is basically going to be the higher adrenal, androgenic, and testosterone levels. And then the third criteria would be cysts and inflammation in the ovaries. And again, only two of the three need to be met to be diagnosed with the PCOS. Okay, got it. 
So we're focusing today on the more broad PCOS. Let's talk about what symptoms are associated. So as I've mentioned, the, the big ones that we think of as irregular menstruation, and uh, we can also see anovulation, where maybe a woman is menstruating but not ovulating. Those are big two major signs, and that's why infertility is one of the biggest symptoms of PCOS or, or conditions associated with it. And then this hyperandrogenism, so this high amount of the uh, testosterone and adrenal-based hormones, which would be like our DHEA, our cortisol, and our testosterone. Now, there is certain conditions when we're defining irregular cycles. There is oligomenorrhea, which is a condition in which you can have infrequent menstrual periods. This would mean uh, women of childbearing age that have variation that's typically more than 35 days without menstruating. So, you know, women that go a couple months without cycles or cycle eight times a year or something like that would be within that category, and that would be one of the criteria of the PCOS. And then again, anovulation, not actually ovulating during cycle or um, actually amenorrhea or not having a cycle at all would also fall within that first criteria. And then taking it to more of the androgenic pathways, symptoms we could see could be hirsutism, which would be uh, hair growth on the facial area, or like male pattern baldness, uh, hair thinning and hair loss. Uh, viralization, actually, or virilization, and um, some call it masculinization, uh, which include basically patterns of the male hormonal mechanisms. And so we could see beyond the hirsutism and excessive facial and body hair, we could see, like I mentioned, the baldness. We can see acne, deepening of the voice, actually. We can see increased musculature. We can see an increased sex drive. And then in women, we can actually see that the uterus size will shrink, the clitoris, the clitoris will enlarge, and breasts become smaller. So there's actually these physiological changes that are visual, that can be assessed and measured, and also can be experienced on a day-to-day -day function. That's pretty wild. Mm -hmm. so, and, and, you know, we think some of those sound pretty extreme, but the irregularity of the cycle is so, so common. And then, you know, going back to some of these maybe more bordering, maybe not to the level of truly having hirsutism where beyond plucking, we're, we're needing to use laser therapy and so forth. A lot of these symptoms can be moderately expressed, and the cycle is the one that's often just overlooked in the medical model of, well, it's just irregular. Take birth control <laughs> to get sure. it back on track. Sure. And then talking about this hormonal imbalance on any of these levels really can drive infertility. And I think that's a huge piece of our population that's actually seeking IVF and fertility help. Yes, absolutely. You know, so if you're not having a regular cycle, it's very hard to uh, focus on optimizing your fertility and mapping out your ovulation. And as I mentioned, another element of PCOS would be anovulation, just not actually releasing an egg to be fertilized. And so if we have this foundational hormonal imbalance and we're expressing more male pattern hormones or more cortisol-based hormones, uh, the uterus is not in a very inviting place to uh, hold a fertilized egg if that egg is even able to be released to be fertilized to begin with. And then beyond sexual hormones, what about the influence of dysmetabolic trends? Sure. So these are ones that often also get overlooked. So when we start to see testosterone elevating in women or DHEA elevating in women, we want to look at things like insulin resistance. So obesity and metabolic syndrome, PCOS can be a huge 
a huge root cause of weight gain and also metabolic syndrome, which would be irregular lipids as well as irregular blood sugar levels and increased waist circumference. So diabetes and insulin resistance are a huge trend within the PCOS family. And we can also see them some of those complications like acanthans nigrans, which um, is the darkening lines in the skin, um, or nigrans. Um, I never can pronounce that one right, but it's basically the darkening that can occur. Some women actually when they're pregnant get some of that going on as well as like increased skin tags. And then hypertension, elevated blood pressure can occur because if the blood sugar is going up due to insulin resistance, then we get kind of a more thick syrupy like blood flow and the heart, the cardiovascular system has to pump quicker and harder to get that kind of sludge blood, the thicker oopy goopy blood sugar, thick blood through the system. So we can also see elevated blood pressure. Okay. So how about beyond the diagnostic criteria? How is it actually diagnosed? So big things we look at for women that are suspect of having PCOS are, and, and this is kind of more, we'll start conventional, um, thyroid tests could be looked at. Um, so at least starting with TSH and free thyroxine, um, your free T4. Uh, but, but we would look at, of course, all of the eight different analytes if we're looking functionally at the thyroid gland. Checking out your serum prolactin um, would be something that would be looked at because this is relative to that pituitary, which is connected to that HPA or HPO access. Looking at both free and total testosterone levels to see if there is elevation, as well as androgen indexes, which could also look at cortisol and DHEA. Serum HGH level, this is also indicated by the function of the pituitary. That pituitary gland makes the human... Uh, the, the HGH hormone, which plays a big role with our um, sexual hormone drive and production. And then also looking at our serum hydroxyprogesterone, our free urinary cortisol and creatinine levels. We can actually also look at serum insulin uh, growth factor, which would be a good indicator of insulin resistance. And then even fasting insulin levels as well as glucose levels and hemoglobin A1C percent to look at a three-month average of blood sugar. And then we could look at some lipids and look for differentiation there, as well as vitamin D. Vitamin D tends to be low in uh, women with PCOS. Okay, so that's a long list of kind of the conventional testing model. Um, now, talking about HPA access and the stress access in the body, let's tell listeners about what some of the functional medicine assessments that we would do would be. Yes, because, you know, the, the deal is when we find some imbalance with some of those values, there's not always a... Uh, a plus B equals C type intervention pathway. It's just information at, at times to uh, help to develop the diagnosis. But when we're looking at why it's happening, absolutely, we like to look at either the Dutch hormone assessment or a salivary hormone assessment. So we do two different panels and it really depends on the individual of where we would start. But the Dutch panel, which looks at the dried urine hormonal uh, process, it looks at the difference of metabolized versus free cortisol. So this can look at the metabolites of all hormones actually, from pregnenolone, that building block steroid hormone, 
all the way down to the alpha and beta forms of testosterone. So one is going to be more dominant, one's more recessive as far as expression. And then it also looks at the process of the metabolism of estrogen. So our hydroxy-16 versus different other intermediary metabolites. It looks at methylation versus hydroxylation. So like the detox pathways and breakdown of our estrogen expression. And then that really allows us as a system how to prioritize that individual's body of whether we need to help with the secondary metabolism or the stored hormone and the body's use and detoxification of that. If we need to work with aromatization and block conversion hormone pathways. Um, so that's really looking at the downstream influence of, of the hormones that are being expressed on a day-to-day -day function. How are they being used and how are they being broken down? Okay, so that's kind of the, the information we get in the Dutch. Now, we also would consider potentially looking at a salivary panel, especially for those that are on transdermal bioidentical cream. So if someone's taking a progesterone cream um, or an E2, E2, E3 blend of creams or, or what have you, uh, we'd really want to look at saliva because that would be the most accurate way of assessing the bioavailability and the true hormone expression. Uh, this is still the gold standard of the Journal of Endocrinology, looking at a four-point cortisol assessment. So seeing the cortisol stress hormone from the adrenals at rise, at midday, before dinner, before bed. So we're looking at a cascade of the release of cortisol. And um, I like to run the Neurohormone Complete Plus panel. This is usually, I would say 99% of the time, this is my go-to. Unless an individual already had a salivary assessment from another lab in the last six months, that's then when I would go into Dutch. But generally speaking, I start with the Neurohormone Complete Plus panel because this also looks at the neurotransmitters. And the neurotransmitters, which are made by the medulla of the adrenals, you know, the adrenal cortex makes the DHEA and the cortisol, which is a big piece of the story of PCOS. But the medulla of the adrenal gland makes the neurotransmitters dopamine, epinephrine, and norepinephrine. And so I really like to see, is this individual stressed and wired, where they're also high on adrenaline and uh, all of those different neurotransmitters? Or are they stressed and tired, and they're in this flat line of cortisol, as well as a flat line of their neurotransmitters? Because the approach and the interventions would be very different based on getting that, that information. Okay. So beyond those two tests of our hormones, what about looking at something like a micronutrient test for PCOS individuals? So that could be huge. And I mean, there's definitely a lot of different nutrients that play a role in hormonal regulation, as well as then some of the symptom management, like I'm thinking of chromium, which can play a role with the follicles um, in, in the ovaries. And chromium also can play a role with utilization of insulin and activate insulin signaling. So that's going to help to then in turn lower blood sugar, which will in turn help to lower estrogenic expression and, you know, make this nice balance and equilibrium in the system. So Micronutrients, especially if the patient has a goal of fertility with PCOS or regular cycles, that's a great way to accelerate and ensure that, that we are balancing the body from you know, the root cause and looking at different patterns of imbalance on a micronutrient level and how we can replete with therapeutic supplements and diet. So you know, within the food is medicine nutritional interventions, we can help things like beyond regulating insulin and blood sugar, we can reduce inflammation. If we see certain antioxidant patterns are depleted, 
regulating and bumping up those antioxidants are going to play a big role with natural anti-inflammatory support. And then like I mentioned, there's also going to be hormones like, uh, sorry, nutrients like zinc that play a role in hormonal expression. So for all of the different causes, definitely micronutrients have their trends. And if we have functional deficiencies, we're really kind of running up a downhill escalator if we just look at hormones and don't correct the root, which could be that micronutritional deficiency. Okay, so I'm super excited to get into all that, and I know we'll talk through supplements and food for repleting some of the common micronutrient deficiencies, Yes. but just very quickly, beyond looking at blood, saliva, and urine, there are imaging tests as well? Yes, so especially if you are looking at that third criteria of actually having polycystic ovaries, right? That's then, and, and for women women that are cycling irregularly, it is good to find out if you have cysts, um, what level of inflammation is going on and get that staged so that when you're going to go through functional approaches of healing and resetting your body, you can actually track that. I'm, I'm a huge you know, data geek and I like to know changes that are occurring. So beyond waiting for that cycle to come, which sometimes it can take a full year, sometimes it can take 18 months, really depending on the level of adrenal imbalance um, and depending on if you're an over-exerciser. I mean, there's so many factors, but beyond just waiting for that cycle to come, actually getting a baseline read via ovarian um, ultrasound would be a huge uh, help as well as transvaginal, um, which would be, they would actually be inserting the ultrasound uh, intervaginal to see what's going on in that area. And um, we could also do something like a, a pelvic CT scan or an MRI. Um, and, and those would actually give us then a visual of both the adrenals and the ovaries to see if there was any abnormalities in the adrenal gland size as well, if it seemed to be very severe. And we were seeing a lot of significant patterns with the cortisol and DHEA. Okay, but all that's not necessary just for the diagnosis of PCOS as a syndrome. That would just be just determining polycystic ovaries, right? Correct, correct, yep. Okay, so before I have you share with listeners our functional medicine approaches to PCOS, let's just start with what the conventional me medicine model approaches are. Okay, so I think think, and I hope at least, <laughs> that first-line approach for all practitioners should be weight loss as a recommendation, <laughs> um, but also what might be thrown at you with like a one handout with the five or less minutes you have with your doctor is, you know, weight loss and exercise, but doesn't tell us a lot, and actually, which we'll talk about later, like I mentioned briefly, over-exercising can drive us down a rabbit hole that makes things imbalanced. So the typical true first-line treatment, I think, from conventional docs is trying to drive ovulation and um, especially if fertility is desired, Clomid is going to be a go-to, which is the, the number one still uh, prescribed uh, fertility medication in the States. And this is really a slingshot to the pituitary gland. So I speak on this in my episode on infertility. Um, so if you want to hear more <laughs> of my thoughts on this drug and how it works, all I'm going to say now is, is that it's just it's a slingshot to the pituitary gland. So it stimulates the pituitary output. Uh, which can be concerning because that, that doesn't target any one direct pathway and it can drive a lot of side effects such as uh, mood instability, anxiety, panic. Um, it can be quite a rocky road for women that are going through the stresses of infertility and then put on a medication that can influence so much of mood management and sleep and things like that. So that's that's one 
first line drug. The other one is uh, letrozole, which is an aromatase inhibitor. And this was actually used commonly post uh, chemo um, after breast cancer. Um, this is also used conventionally for gynomastia in men, um, so men that have uh, breast formation. So basically this blocks uh, the estrogenic um, conversions in the body, and so that's why it's used with breast cancer and also in men. Uh, but again, it, it, so it's, it's playing a role with our hormonal expression, but not always successful in this case of PCOS because sometimes testosterone is already too high, and so not always going to help to regulate or reduce that testosterone. So, so not always the best fit. Um, and both drugs uh, have been tied to cardiac abnormalities um, when watching uh, fetal development and then newborns uh, in women that were taking the drugs. And so I know, I believe India just banned uh, uh, letrozole and um, I think I think Clomid as well. Uh, I'm not exactly sure, but I know that these have been tied in research to uh, cardiovascular abnormalities um, when compared to natural uh, fertility. So definitely things to be mindful of as a, as a last line of defense versus a first line of defense, I would say, in my perspective. Sure. And that can be scary stuff. Um, so what about birth control? So I know that's a big go-to when fertility isn't necessarily yeah. a first priority. I mean, I think, I don't know about you, but I mean, that was, I had bad cramps and, you know, unbeknownst to me. And, and now I know I have endometriosis, but I think, you know, birth control was given to me at age 15 because of severe cramping and birth control is always, is generally prescribed as that, oh, it's just a band-aid effect. It's just going to regulate your hormones. And it's given for so many female hormone imbalances. PCOS definitely is one of them because the pill is going to drive cycle, right? It's going to tell the body um, that kind of especially the ones like orthotricycline that, that cycle and have the placebo days and different hormone release per seven-day increment. Um, these are really just kind of synthetically forcing the body to cycle. So it is a Band-Aid on a volcano, if you will. Um, so the ethanol estro estradiol and medroxyprogesterone, be mindful that although these have words like estradiol and progesterone, that these are synthetics. So these are not bioidentical hormones and often oral contraceptives or birth control are prescribed without hormone assessment. So we may be adding fuel to the fire. Um, you know, we're not necessarily going to be creating balance or synergy, we're just overriding the hormonal expression rather than understanding the hormonal expression, you know. So so definitely, though, that's a go-to. And then another one is a classification of other hormone influencers, with, which are the anti-androgens, um, another super popular drug for like the hirsutism or, or male uh, darkening in hair and um, even uh, blood sugar regularities can be spironolactone. Um, and that whole family of those anti-androgen uh, medications. And then the tertiary or kind of third go-to drug family is going to be the oral hypoglycemic agents like metformin. And then down the line, if those types of drugs, glucophage, metformin, those don't work, then things like insulin um, could be prescribed as, as blood sugar control uh, continues to be imbalanced and, and we're at higher risk for or diagnosed with at that point than a level of uncontrolled diabetes. So um, I think the first line of defense is birth control. Second line of defense, especially if there's the hair growth, is the anti-androgens and then these hypoglycemic agents. And in uh, infertility, the oral hypoglycemic agents are often used. A lot of women are, are preemptively put on metformin along with their Clomid um, in hopes of helping for that to regulate the fertility as well. Okay. So we're looking at potentially three prescriptions right, just right. for that piece for the um, 
hormonal regulation aspect. And then I know to deal with some of the other symptoms that we've talked about, like the hair growth and acne, there's often pretty harsh topicals that are prescribed as well. Yeah. And, and the whole other family of oral medications. So, I mean, birth, uh, not birth control, excuse me, uh, antibiotics are often prescribed for, uh, acne, right? And so this plays a huge role on leaky gut and the microbiome, which can play a role within driving more inflammation, more weight gain. But absolutely, I I know a lot of teens that I work with and women in their 20s and 30s that have PCOS. And what's interesting is often they're surprised when I tell them they have PCOS, right? It's like they're on birth control and before that they didn't have a regular cycle. They're on maybe a uh, topical hair removing agent, right? Like a, a gel. And then maybe they're also taking a topical acne agent, which has like erythromycin and clindamycin. So two different antibiotics as well as benzyl peroxide and a bunch of different harsh chemicals and it's like oh well well, maybe we're treating PCOS but we've never been diagnosed and we've never looked at the root cause Um, and then again my concern is that these types of topicals can be really harsh on the GI tract and then that further perpetuates dysfunction down the line. Sure. So even something that we're putting on our skin can influence our microbiome in a negative way. Absolutely. Absolutely. And hormones. Yeah. Yeah. And now let's get into the good stuff. Let's talk about diet modifications and your approaches managing PCOS with functional medicine. Sure. So the the one that I kind of, uh, I guess, teased in the intro is the di- dietary influence of ketosis. And so this is so exciting to me as a practitioner when I see someone with elevations of DHEA, that's a female or male actually, but Females that have elevated DHEA and are not cycling, I get super pumped because I tell them about how we can use this specific diet where we can reduce the DHEA as a fuel source. So we can, by entering into a ketogenic state, we can metabolize DHEA on a rapid rate because DHEA is an intermediary metabolite or a building block to make ketone bodies. So we can actually correct that DHEA level, which can help with regulation of cycle, which is just awesome. And then we can also help with insulin resistance. So we know that when we go into a ketogenic state, we can actually see an increase of greater than 400% of sensitivity to insulin. So this is also, you know, rather than going on the metformin drug for fertility or to regulate the blood sugar levels, which can then be a mitochondrial toxin and really shut down the energy cells of the body and drive a lot more inflammation in the body, we can actually use the ketogenic diet to improve insulin resistance and increase insulin sensitivity, which in turn helps to improve our fasting blood sugar levels and improve that hemoglobin A1C, that three-month average of blood sugar levels. So all of the insulin resistance and glucose intolerance and, and those types of changes we can see by following a ketogenic diet. And then we can also see a reduction of inflammation. A lot of this is because we're pulling out a lot of the big pro-inflammatory foods of the standard American diet, which are in the carbohydrate family. So when we go ketosis, you know, just for those of you that are, this is a new word, um, 
if we're going into a ketogenic diet, we're starving the body of carbohydrates and thus glucose as the primary fuel source. So the diet is predominant in fat, moderate in protein, and very, very low in carbohydrates. In fact, carbohydrates are only coming from residual sources. So carbohydrates are actually only coming from things like nuts and seeds or coming from the uh, fibers in our non-starchy vegetables. We're not consuming any actual... um, is that the garbage man? Can or, you, or is that your dog? It must be. I hope. <laughs> nope, not my dog. My dog made an appearance. Um, I heard him earlier. Hey, Houston. <laughs> it's either construction or the garbage man. I'm hoping it's either the garbage way. man so that it passes. Sorry, guys. This is real life. When you, you know, we have good mics, but we do not have a recording studio. Yep. Uh, <laughs> it's the Houston streets. <laughs> <laughs> the streets. The soundtrack of the streets. Um, goodness. Uh, I was talking about. Um, ketosis and carbohydrates. So when we starve the body of carbohydrates and thus starve the body of glucose, the body has to make ketone bodies. And so that's what plays this dynamic shift in our blood sugar metabolism. And then, like I said, that DHEA is a building block to make ketone bodies. Um, But I think I was connecting this to inflammation because when we pull carbohydrates out of the diet, that means that we're pulling out wheat. That means we're pulling out all forms of gluten. That means we're pulling out all grains. That means we're pulling out corn. That means we're pulling out refined sugar. And uh, that typically also means we're pulling out soy um, as a legume for sure. And so, you know, we're pulling out all of these main pro-inflammatory foods and that helps also in turn to reduce inflammation in the body. And then a therapeutic ketogenic diet, one that's done with food as medicine approaches, should actually have an abundance of anti-inflammatory compounds like our coconut oil and our avocado and our leafy greens and things like that. So definitely we can see reduction of inflammation when ketosis is done correctly. And I think even just in general with a ketogenic diet for sure. Um, and then the, the last two things we're looking at is for more of the hormonal influencers, we can actually see an increase of the HGH. So that's, remember, the the hormone that we look at for fertility, human growth hormone. Um, And so when we're looking at the HGH, we um, see an increase in that like we would with the Clomid on slingshotting the pituitary without having to take that slingshot drug. So we can actually get an increased surge of HGH just by going ketogenic diet, especially if using some intermittent fasting. We can see a loss of body fat, which means also an improvement in the metabolized metabolized secondary hormones. The hormones that are stored in the fatty tissue get utilized with a ketogenic diet when we're using the body fat as fuel. And then that also we can see serum leptin reduced, which leptin plays a big role with satiety. And so as we get that increase of insulin sensitivity, we also get an increase of leptin sensitivity. And that tends to make the weight loss more permanent, if you will, as far as reducing cravings. Okay, so there's more information about Can you ketosis. Tell I'm excited. For, <laughs> yes. There's lots, lots, lots more in episodes 14 and 15. Those are kind of going through part one and part two of ketosis and what exactly Allie's talking about. And then episode 47 that we just did, we dive into keto pitfalls and troubleshooting some of the common errors or mistakes that um, people make when getting into ketosis. So definitely check out those episodes for more information. If this is sounding good to you or sounding like something you'd like to try, 
Yes. Uh, and we'll talk about it at the end. I promise I'll yeah. wait till we get really excited. But in case you guys have to leave before the end, um, we're so excited that we're launching September 12th. And for those of you that are listening during any time of the year in archive recordings and whatnot, but September 12th, 2017, we are launching the virtual ketosis platform. And it, we'll talk about it at the end of the show, but so much goodness at an awesome value um, to really experience ketosis or accelerate your already ketogenic diet so we'll we'll save that at the end of the show but super jazzed about it okay lots more coming but let's before we go there let's just back up and talk about the effects of a low glycemic diet and when that would be more appropriate sure so a low glycemic diet also would be a great starting point as far as a therapeutic approach for pcos because it's um, going, especially like a low glycemic paleo approach diet, right? So it, it's always kind of good, better, best. Um, it would definitely still reduce insulin because we're reducing our blood sugar demand. Uh, we would see a reduction in body fat likely if, if following a low glycemic diet that has good balance of macronutrients, which would mean also weight loss, also reduction of blood sugar and that hemoglobin A1C as opposed to a high carbohydrate, you know, standard American diet. So definitely low glycemic could be a great step in the right direction. And in some individuals, this low glycemic diet paired with a customized anti-inflammatory diet of following like our uh, MRT, that mediator release test, that blood test that looks at 150 foods and chemicals and markers of inflammation in your body. Following MRT protocol with a low glycemic diet can definitely get successful outcomes to reduce PCOS and um, help to manage PCOS. So that is definitely something to be considered. However, I will say the influence of those that have elevated DHEA um, are really and are looking to see that increase of HGH that's where we'll definitely get more of the biochemical mechanisms in favor with ketosis or a ketogenic diet. So then low glycemic would be a good place to start if we're coming just from high carb standard American diet or sad diet. Yes. But, <laughs> yes. But ketosis would be more of a therapeutic treatment approach. Yes. And I mean, again, this would be if monitored and the individual does have high DHEA. Uh, we don't want to drive more distress to an individual that is in severe adrenal fatigue. So someone with PCOS might have a super low DHEA and low cortisol and low epinephrine and low norepinephrine, and they actually may be a better candidate for a low glycemic diet. And then focusing on adrenal rebound prior to going into a ketogenic approach. So it really is individualized. And, and that's why with functional medicine, which is different than just generalized, well, definitely different than conventional medicine, but also different than uh, your, um, what is the word I'm looking for with an I? integrated medicine, different than integrated medicine because we like the data, right? So functional medicine, we're always looking at the information to determine the root cause and integrated medicine and holistic medicine can be more just lifestyle and, and general, um, generalized. So I really think taking it individualized, seeing the level of adrenal imbalance and if the DHEA is high are some of the clinical indicators I would look at to prescribe that ketogenic diet versus low glycemic. Right. We like to get real nerdy and look at the numbers. Mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. <laughs> um, yes, So let's go into foods to avoid. I know you mentioned these briefly with ketosis, but let's just touch on these again. Yes. So all high glycemic and inflammatory foods would be a huge priority. So this would mean refined sugar, 
especially fructose in its refined forms, uh, gluten and gluten-containing products, and, and really all grains if possible. Uh, and then dairy as a hormone contributor to estrogen. So I'm actually uh, pretty, you know, some diets I will allow dairy in, especially like raw cheeses and good quality yogurts and such. But when we're talking about PCOS and hormonal imbalance, I do like to pull dairy out completely because even if it's RGHB free, so free from the recumbent bovine growth hormone, it still has estrogen. I mean, it's, it's, milk it's it's breast milk from a cow <laughs> and so you're definitely getting estrogenic influences organically from dairy and that's one that I'd pull out for sure with uh the PCOS conditions and acne as well I think for too. sure for yeah. sure right yeah but if we're getting that hormonal acne that's one of my absolutely. first go-tos is let's try you six weeks no dairy yeah absolutely you can see huge outcomes right away Okay, so beyond monitoring with functional labs, because that can be a big piece of the puzzle, um, in part two, we'll have you delve more into the functional approaches and underlying mechanisms. Um, so we'll get more into the HPA access and PCOS in that episode. I'll also have you save supplement suggestions for that episode as well. Okay, <laughs> I was getting scared. <laughs> This could turn into a long one. Um, but for today's episode, let's go beyond low glycemic and ketosis and just share some of the therapeutic foods or food as medicine that can be used in PCOS treatment. Okay, perfect. So I, I think that the first one that I would want to start with, which is one of my favorite kind of quote unquote superfood powders is maca. So maca is a Peruvian root, a tuber, uh, a root vegetable, if you will. And it stimulates the pituitary gland. So it could be thought of in a way as like nature's clomid um, because it does kind of slingshot the pituitary gland. So it's not a phytoprogesterone. It doesn't particularly just push progesterone. It actually helps with energy libido by helping to bump up that HGH. It also helps with progesterone because progesterone is stimulated by the pituitary. And so that can help with fertility and hormonal balance. Um, and then it can also help with reduction of anxiety and some of the trickle-down side effects of too low progesterone. So things like fluid retention um, and, like I said, can help with the hormone regulation overall, which would be the biggest focus for today. So uh, maca can be used about two teaspoons upwards of a tablespoon, and we can incorporate this in smoothies. We can incorporate this in nut balls or bars. Uh, we can also incorporate this in uh, keto fudge. So if we're doing something that is in the ketogenic diet, keto fudge is a great delivery where we're using something maybe like coconut oil and cacao powder and that maca um, all blended together and then kind of set in the fridge. And, and that would work really nice as a delivery of the adaptogen maca. That sounds delicious and sounds like it's a blog post in the making. <laughs> yes, yes. And then I know another one we do already have up for those of you that are looking for a resource is the avocado maca cacao smoothie. And uh, that's linked. We'll link that in the show notes. I believe it's under a fertility blog that I wrote. I it's about, a, about a beautifying blend or something. Okay. And it's tying in skin health and fertility. Okay. Perfect. Good. And for those reasons, yes. So the maca also works as an adaptogen. So it helps us to adapt to high stress demands, which is why I'm kind of connecting it to energy as well. So one that's really great for professional drive and vigor and just day-to-day -day functionality 
if you uh, are burned out by incorporating it in any of those foods or you're someone that just likes your eggs for breakfast and don't want to play with any of those types of things, you can take maca in a supplement form as well. Um, and I can put a link to one from, I, I really like one by Pure Encapsulations. Um, and, and that would be taken just like one capsule twice a day. And it's a good blend of three different forms of maca. There's different colors of maca. And when you buy it in a food form, you always want it gelatinized. Um, gelatinized is going to improve uh, the absorb absorption or the bioavailability of the compounds. So that's all maca. Um, another one I think of for PCOS is stone fruits. So they're also in season right now towards the end of the summer. So stone fruits are anything with a pit, like apricots, peaches, plums, nectarines, cherries would also be, which are my favorite right now. Those Rainier cherries are awesome. Uh, these are going to contain really powerful phytonutrients that can have anti-obesity or uh, play a role with metabolism and weight loss. Also significant anti-inflammatory and anti-diabetic uh, or blood sugar regulating properties. So these can help a lot with the inflammation, the insulin resistance, especially if paired with protein or fat. So trying cherries uh, before bed in the evening would actually be a great option. Either tart cherry juice in gelatin, that's an idea, which will also help with like leaky gut. Um, but cherry uh, definitely has been shown in research as a natural source of melatonin. So as a source of melatonin, it's going to help to increase our sleep quality and duration of our sleep. You could also do like cherries and cream. So blending coconut cream to keep the dairy out. So blending full fat coconut cream um, and using maybe like a third cup of pitted cherries with that coconut cream. So the fat will blunt that glycemic spike. Um, and that would be a really great uh, evening snack to help with depth of sleep and relaxation while also helping some of those metabolic influences like our blood sugar regularity and our ability to burn calories. Sounds delicious. I'm also really into the frozen cherries that you can get at Costco, though. When they're yes. in season, I'd rather get them fresh. Yes, totally. And so, I mean, you could throw those cherries into a cacao uh, maca smoothie and, and hit two for one for sure. Okay, so what are two more of your favorites for PCOS? Uh, another family I think we, we'd have to acknowledge is the I3C compounds that help with detoxification, um, especially detoxification of hormones. And broccoli would be my star of the show because broccoli has the I3C compounds, which is why we can say in, in research that it can fight against breast cancer because it does drive detox and, and specifically helps with uh, reduction of excess estrogen in the body. But broccoli is also a great source, actually the highest source of chromium um, as far as a food form goes, uh, which is a component that plays a role with our glucose tolerance factor. So this helps to maintain normal blood sugar levels by making our insulin signaling more efficient, thus requiring less insulin to be needed to bring the blood sugar into the cells. So, you know, the whole preface of diabetes and prediabetes, we start with increased or hyperinsulinemia because the insulin signals aren't sufficient. And that leads to insulin resistance, which re requires then hyperinsulinemia or too much insulin, which drives fat storage and inflammation. And then eventually the insulin gets pooped out. And that's when then we start to see the hyperglycemia and the prediabetes and diabetes. So getting way ahead of the trend and supporting the insulin signaling with the chromium is a huge piece of the puzzle. And then um, beyond broccoli for detox and chromium, I would bring in green tea. So green tea would be awesome for the EGCG, which plays a role with our metabolic influence. It can also uh, help with glucose regulation 
And the polyphenols or antioxidants in the green tea have been shown to have a really high ORAC score. So they help with reducing inflammation and oxidative damage as uh, very potent antioxidants. So this is something that we could definitely sip on throughout the day as a cold infusion um, or, or having two cups of green tea, which is also why green tea is tied to breast cancer prevention as well um, for some of those antioxidant compounds. So you can definitely not only regulate and treat your PCOS with these four foods, you can increase your energy, improve your sleep, detox your body, and boost your metabolism. So all things, I think, to keep in your tool belt on a regular basis. Yes, that sounds like a win-win for everyone. Uh, for sure. All right. So today we've covered a lot of ground on PCOS from getting into the diagnostic criteria and symptoms to treatment approaches in conventional medicine, as well as starting on some of our food as medicine solutions. And I know there's more. Always so, more. <laughs> yes. So next episode, we'll get into sharing the whys of PCOS with functional medicine approaches and supplement strategy, as well as talking about the micronutrients involved and functional compounds that can help us to create hormonal balance in the body. Yes. And of course, bring it all back to food again, because that's that's the fun part, right? Yes. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> Always, always. All right, everyone. So thank you so much for listening. But before I let you go, we want to give a shout out and a reminder. I know Allie touched on it briefly, but our new ketosis, virtual ketosis program is launching on September 12th. And the virtual program will include six classes with Allie. So they're done virtually on a webinar hosting um platform, site. platform. <laughs> right? yes, that's, that's the word I'm looking and they for. Will be, they will be recorded. Um, I believe we have them set up six to seven uh, central standard time as far as live and they're every other week. So this program lasts for 12 weeks and it starts, like Becky said, September 12th. And I will be doing them live, so they will be engaging, and you'll be able to communicate with me uh, during and after the webinar. They'll also be archived and recorded, so we'll be posting up each class within uh, 48 hours of the live class. You will have individualized materials. So each uh, week, there'll be three to four different handouts, and one of the handouts will have a customizable element to it to really make this your ketogenic program. And then we also at this time are going to be offering two ebooks. One is Eat Fat Get Skinny. And then the other ebook is our Ketogenic Kickstart. And so all of this is going to be available for a limited time at $99. It's a value of over $450. And um, we're starting our pre sale, I believe it is going to be the last week uh, going into Labor Day. So the last week of August, we're going to start our pre sale where you can purchase the virtual ketosis program at $99. Again, a value of $450. And a super other exciting part is we will be launching, I believe, early September before the group, a week prior to the group, a private ketosis Facebook group where Becky and I will be monitoring it. And it's going to be an awesome uh, resource. You'll never lose membership. So that'll be lifetime membership to the private ketosis Facebook group. And we will be able to share uh, things that we see in the grocery store, uh, constantly address questions be there for motivation and support for each other, sharing our um, non-scale victories, as well as scale and waistline victories. Um, so we're super excited, very comprehensive, and um, bringing all of the techniques with acceleration of what I've used in my Naturally Nourished clinic in Houston for over 2,000 uh, active clients. 
So super pumped to bring this to you guys at what I feel is a very um, reasonable price point and one, a program that will really get you off and rocking into the holiday season. So that's all I got on that. <laughs> you can check it out at um, AllieMillerRD.com under books and programs. It's going to be called Virtual Ketosis or um, AllieMillerRD.com backslash ketosis hyphen class. We will be sure to put that in the keynotes. Um, thank you so much for listening in and stay tuned next week for PCOS part two, episode 49 of the Naturally Nourished podcast. Thank you for listening to the Naturally Nourished podcast. Visit our blog at AllieMillerRD.com for recipes, wellness tips, and food as medicine meal plans. Connect with Allie and Becky at AllieMillerRD on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Until next time, stay nourished and be well.